Hola, hello, hi, bienvenido, and welcome back, or welcome to Mentors Today, Ileana. Hi, everybody. All right, so hey, getting into our show today, we're super excited to have, I'll call him my new friend, one of my apparently like a dozen friends named Jeff that I have. And so we're super excited to welcome Jeff. I'm going to tell us, tell everybody a little bit about Jeff. Jeff Wallace is with us today. He is the founder and CEO of an organization company called Silicon Valley in Your Pocket. We're going to get into that cool name in a, in a little while. But first and foremost, let me tell you about this crazy, impressive resume that he has. So Jeff's the founder of a company called Global Kinetics, which is a market development accelerator to early mid-stage clients seeking to establish or expand operations in the U.S. He is a long, long accomplished mobility industry veteran. He's the co-founder, as we already mentioned, about Silicon Valley in Your Pocket, which is a mobile and online platform that allows global entrepreneurs to essentially access the idea of Silicon Valley, content coaching, relationships, et cetera, as they try and build outside of actual Silicon Valley. In addition to this, he is also an executive board member to the Rutgers Business School Road to Silicon Valley. Rutgers is a university here in the US. He's a founding investor of The Batchery, which is a global incubator for tech startups. Jeff is an entrepreneur in residence for SKTA Inno Partners, also an advisor and a fund investor for UC Berkeley's incubator Skydeck. He's previously worked with companies in the tech industry like Cognizant and Brillo, Brillio, sorry, where he was the founder and global practice head for their, again, mobility practices. He focused a lot on the IoT, Internet of Things, and uh, is a big user experience guy. Prior to this, he is a longtime, multiple-time serial entrepreneur, having founded several businesses from way back when in the 1990s. He, he, is a, he has been an award winner of the prestigious Bridgegate 20 Award, which recognized him as one of the 20 business leaders and difference makers in Southern California's IT and new media communities. Mentors and advises Silicon Valley technology accelerators, mid-stage companies, is an angel investor, a member of the Berkeley Angel Network, a board member for the Innovate Marquette Smart Zone in Michigan, He's a frequent public speaker at international conferences and corporate events. He's published and written about mobility, enterprise mobility, UX, IoT, and startup and entrepreneurial topics. And he holds a BA in economics and finance from Rutgers College and an MBA in strategy, entrepreneurship, and technology from UC Berkeley. He lives in Oakland, California, where he's joining us from today in what I lovingly call the East Bay. He is a fellow Californian, and so we are super excited. Ile, Jeff, welcome to the show today. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you guys very much. Man, listening to the background description, I've, I'm exhausted just listening to what I think I'm supposedly <laughs> doing. So I think I'm too busy. So you've been, I was going to say, you've been pretty busy since you I've were a young guy. Busy. Yeah, I've been pretty hey. busy. You know, I love what I do, so it doesn't feel like a lot. It just feels like fun. So <laughs> that's, awesome. that's, that's awesome. By the way, we, we were wondering if you, you have this impressive resume and a long trajectory in business, why are you keep building entrepreneurship ecosystem? You know, the reality is, I, as I kind of just touched on, I truly love what I do. I, I absolutely get um, great joy and satisfaction out of working with startups, whether that's an individual startup trying to progress itself or whether it's a an accelerator trying to progress many startups or whether it's a, a, another similar type of group in, in another region of the world. I do love working internationally. I know I share that passion with the two of you. Um, 
So, you know, wherever I can help a startup group or a startup founder to move their businesses and move their innovation forward, you know, I just enjoy doing it. So I wouldn't even know what to do if I wasn't doing that. And that's the truth of the matter. I just I do it because I absolutely enjoy it. So talk to us a little bit about because, by the way, that's how that's why you and I so quickly bonded when we were introduced by our other mutual Jeff friend. Absolutely. um, In Canada is because I think he met you met me after after talking to you and immediately said like, oh, you two have to know each other. You're basically, yeah. <laughs> I, I think you're basically the same person. Um, so I, I, I want to go back a little bit because I want to see if we can't shape some context around kind of the proverbial, like how you got into all this stuff. So I mentioned repeatedly throughout your, your CV that you have deep mobility industry experience. Talk to us about like what that was, like what that looked like in your early career and how you became such a renowned expert in this category of mobility. And then just talk to us more broadly about like, what does mobility mean in today's tech industry or just the world, like in 2022 going forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting back in, I guess it was around 2008, I had gotten together with a colleague from the large corporate enterprise software space and he was stepping away from a firm. He was in a very se- senior role, like a C-level, a C-suite role at a large, large global software company. And he wanted to step into the entrepreneurial realm. And uh, we got together. He came into the Bay Area. He didn't live here at that time. He came to the Bay Area and we got together over a meal and we're chatting about, you know, his next journey of his own, you know, uh, very successful career in large software enterprise uh, space. And he thought, you know, I want to do something fun and exciting. And it felt in that 08 time frame, like mobile was was kind of a new horizon for the enterprise world. It was already out for about a year or so. The iPhone was kind of born, if you will, in 07. But it kind of felt like a new horizon for the enterprise world. And uh, between him and myself and, and a couple others we brought in, we just decided let's let's create a business looking at how mobile is going to impact businesses across a very wide spectrum, meaning we thought it had the potential to impact every business. Not, I don't think we could have foreseen what it has become, but we definitely knew it was going to have a broad impact. And so we set about doing essentially a business where we were building enterprise mobility solutions for large enterprises. As you may imagine, I mentioned he's a a large corporate guy. we just had different worldviews. He came from a large corporate perspective. I came from a very entrepreneurial perspective. And so we kind of had just been butting heads a little bit in business philosophy, but I had found a true passion in mobile and really thinking about how mobile could impact and truly change and disrupt, um, to, to use a totally beaten down term. Um, <laughs> We're all disruptors. Yeah, all disruptors. I truly did feel like mobile could disrupt the way things were being done. And so I started speaking and writing and and talking about my perspectives in that in that context and ultimately got recruited to. Ironically, I was uh, recruited to the largest firm I've ever worked for, a very, very large company to help. uh, It was called Cognizant. It is called Cognizant. It still exists. I just don't work there any longer. And I was asked to come on board and help kind of launch and start their global enterprise mobility practice. And so, you know, with the struggles I was having philosophically and as all startups do with capital being a challenge, I thought, well, here's this very intrapreneurial opportunity for me to get access to the resources and more importantly, maybe get access to the client base because we were serving large enterprises and Cognizant had probably the vast majority of the Fortune 500 
um, and even probably the vast majority of the Fortune 1000 as clients. And I knew we'd have these testing beds to go try out and pilot where could mobile really be impactful. And so I jumped in there and did that for about two years. It was, it was going very nicely as a business. It was growing nicely. We were gaining access to a lot of companies and helping test various aspects of mobility. But I just decided after a couple of years doing it um, for a variety of reasons, I needed to jump back into the ecosystem of startups. That's okay. where my passion is. Um, as I say, if I wake up after my alarm goes off, something's wrong. I'm not having a good world. <laughs> and so I'm back to waking up ahead of my alarm with enthusiasm and excitement for the day ahead of me, which had left me after a couple of years of doing that in the large corporate world. And so it was really about the impact I could have. I felt yeah. like I could have a much broader impact to earlier stage companies than I could large stage, you know, long, long existing companies. So, so you literally enter the space at a time, like, like you said, essentially almost pre iPhone slash the moment iPhone is born, right? So yeah. yes, there were mobile solutions and handheld devices and things like that prior to that, but, but minuscule and even in the consumer world and no not way. In all the smart mobility era, yeah, right? right. I okay. The smart mobility era, not just the mobile era. There were, as you're saying, lots of stuff mobile. Yeah. There was nothing smart mobile, which is that new era that I say started in 07. And so here's my quick follow-on is like jump forward to today, 2022, when I would I would guess like most people would say, ah, mobile is like just a commodity now. Right. I mean, like it's 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 done. We've we've had it, we've got it, we're you know, we're tired of the all the devices are the same, they all do the same. But is it still a central part of the enterprise or just of the technology landscape, like over the next 10 years? Like, what do you think, Mr. Expert? I, I think there's zero doubt in my mind, at least, that it is um, a forever. It will exist with us forever. It may change form factors and, and things of that sort. But the truth of the matter is you'd rather leave home without your keys or your wallet than your phone these days. And so, uh, pretty much. You know, if you want to know how important your mobile device is to you, imagine losing it and uh, what that would you know, the, the mayhem that would cause for you. So I think mobile is here to stay. I don't think it's a fad. I don't think it's a 10 year or 20 year fad. I think it's a, that in 07, I think that began the industry of smart mobility and smart technology. And I think we're just going to see, as I said, different form factors. Um, but I think mobile is here to stay. And I think we have not yet seen the, the depth of the impact that it can have on, on people and on business. Wow. Okay. So a lot to come. To the people that say like, ah, we basically, uh, you know, we've all got the same devices. It's no big deal. Android, iPhone, whatever. I mean, you can pick your flavor, but what's, it's not the device itself. It's not the commoditization of it. Every year, you know, just follow Moore's law. They're going to get faster. They're going to get better. They're going to have more storage. They're going to have more functionality, more capability. And I think it's that continuing progress on the technical level that will enhance user experiences and give new user experiences and customer experiences that I don't think we can know what they all are, you know, sitting here today. I think we can predict some things, but we're seeing AR and VR. They haven't even remotely scratched the surface yet. Those are only going to get better and better. You're not going to see a world of people walking around with headsets on their heads, I don't think, but we are going to see AR and VR impact us in bigger ways. It's going to go way beyond what Pokemon Go did. You know, if, if you remember that little, you know, that little, um, puff in the, uh, you know, enthusiasm of, oh my God, look at this, incredible. But wait till you start seeing that being used in really compelling in business, you know, kind of revenue generating, not that Pokemon didn't generate revenue, but in business revenue generating ways, not just consumer ways. Yeah. And can you tell us in more detail what is Silicon Valley in your pocket? 
Absolutely. So, you know, Silicon Valley, I'm sure you both know, is is a geography. I like to think of it more as a mindset um, because I really do think wherever you are in the world, you can kind of function like a Silicon Valley company. But what happens, I I run a, I was running an accelerator here. We just had our 15th cohort actually last week. It was the first time in person two and a half years. So we were happy to have our new batch of companies, founders come in. But I was, you know, when we were running our local accelerator, we were getting lots of applicants from all over the world, which is not an uncommon thing here in Silicon Valley. You could bump into you know, people from just about anywhere, any corner of the world on any given day. Often joke, if you throw a stone, you can hit three international founders in, in it with a good bounce. So, <laughs> um, so I was sitting with a, an international founder um, who had been visiting from South Africa. And I, I found myself thinking something that kept coming to me when I was with a lot of international founders, which was, I wish they could have accelerated at home and been a little further advanced so that I could likely have helped them achieve the kind of outcomes that they were uh, eager to achieve in terms of either fundraising, you know, re- getting capital access or getting even client access or, or what have you. Just trying to you know, live that Silicon Valley kind of dream, if you will, of a founder. And I pulled my phone out of my sport coat pocket when I was sitting with this, this gentleman. And I said, you know, if you have one of these, it's kind of like having Silicon Valley in your pocket. Wherever you are in the world, you should be able to access the tools and techniques and best practices, et cetera, that we use here in Silicon Valley to advance your innovation, get it further matured. And then when you come here, we can kind of plug you in in a, in a very different way. And long story short, he and I uh, decided to uh, co-found Silicon Valley in Your Pocket, a virtual startup accelerator that was really targeted at international founders so that they could tap into these techniques and methods used here to foster and grow innovative startup companies. And we brought in one of my other partners from my local accelerator and and the three of us ran um, Silicon Valley in Your Pocket and continue to this day, you know, growing Silicon Valley in Your Pocket now. So this was in what year? That was in 2018, we we launched it. Okay. in 2019, we um, we started from scratch, by the way. We literally had a clean whiteboard and started developing the content, the curriculum, the partnerships, you know, everything that the two of you, I'm sure, are well-versed in understanding what an accelerator is. Um, we started from an absolutely clean slate, built it from the ground up. And in 2019, we were very humbled and fortunate to get a partnership with UC Berkeley for an international program they wanted to launch across LATAM. And they actually wanted to launch it in Spanish. And so they licensed all of Silicon Valley in Your Pocket's content and curriculum, et cetera, translated it to Spanish. And in April of 2020, they launched. Unfortunately, remember, timing is everything. In April of 2020, exactly, very early days of COVID and the world's kind of shutting down. They did get a cohort up up and running. They uh, It was lesser... um, uh, full than they had hoped. But nonetheless, um, it was very, um, as I said, humbling for us that they would have looked at our program as the program that they opted in, you know, to move forward with. So we feel very um, fortunate that we've developed some really great um, content. We've worked with, I mean, we're north of 1,000 plus founders around 40 plus countries around the world now. Um, we wish it was 10 times that, but you know, we're, we can only do what we can do. And um, 
Yeah, in the last four years, it's it's been kind of a blur. I mean, there's been so much work we've done there, but um, like I said, today still pushing it forward and absolutely loving what we do with founders around the world. And what do you think it had changed? Like when you start, you set up like a Silicon Valley in your pocket package, and now after pandemic, what are the changes that you see in the ecosystem and that you have to apply to your own program? You know, it's a great question, Ilya, and I'll tell you the one thing that was interesting was when COVID emerged and kind of shut things down for everybody, our work at Silicon Valley in your pocket didn't change one bit. We were built virtual. We were purely virtual. We were servicing everything virtual. Out of the hundreds and hundreds and, and even thousand plus uh, founders, I've probably met five of them in person. You know, like that's not the way we were built. We were built to service founders where they are, when they're ready, you know, where they are. It was uh, all about removing geography and removing time constraints that a lot of uh, accelerators kind of just naturally imposed on founders. Having been a serial founder, I know how hard that is to be in a certain geography for a specified amount of time and to say every Tuesday at 11, I'm going to do this. And every Thursday at 1 p.m., I'm going to do that. That is hard for a founder's life to accommodate. And so we stripped away geography. We stripped away time. What we didn't anticipate, we thought we were at an advantage, but what we didn't anticipate was COVID would encourage every other accelerator to virtualize. Right. So our competitive landscape, as we always encourage founders to do, is look at where you sit in the position of the competitive landscape. Our competitive landscape became immensely more crowded after COVID because Everybody virtualized and our advantage of being virtual kind of got eroded very quickly. So we had to make our own adjustments and, uh, and pivots of sorts to try to continue to you know, maintain an advantage in our space. I mean, I think, like I said, I wish we were 10x or 20x bigger than we are, um, but we're still navigating that adjustment in, in truth. I mean, we're, yeah. we're not, I wouldn't say we figured it out. You know, we're not dialed in. We're still figuring everything out. But I think we're very happy with what we've been able to do to date and hope we can continue to service and support founders around the globe with it. Yeah, I would argue uh, in, your, in your behalf there, the, the rest of the industry that you said, like they competitively adjusted they didn't necessarily competitively adjust, right? They just realized they had no choice but to virtualize. Oh, it was existentially adjust. They had, they had to adjust virtually to what they were trying to do. And yeah. then they emerged as something different than what they were. Absolutely. Tell me, because you've said it a few times, right? We wish we could 10x, 20x this, blah, blah, blah. So ideal scenario, understanding what you now understand, the conditions that have changed on the ground, as Lily said, what is Silicon Valley in your pockets, community growth, targets like what is your what does it look like over the next five years ten years like what do you what do you what do you aim to accomplish yeah uh, a very good question and one of the adjustments we've made and I don't think this is unique to us I think others are doing something similar but we we were very much what I would almost call b to c if you consider the c the entrepreneur um, so it, it is a b but it's you know it's an individual or maybe a founding team of two or three and that's who we were targeting and so we were looking for people who had startups and and doing marketing in their direction if you will to try to catch them in the net of our outreach now we're really working with other accelerators around the world 
and other groups that, uh, as I would say, we look for congregation points of entrepreneurs now rather than looking for the individual entrepreneurs. And so we've got programs, for example, with female founders across the MENA region, Mideast North Africa region. You know, that's exciting for us to work with groups that are trying to do that. And we become the underp- underpinnings of their curriculum for startup, mm. startup you know. Uh, yeah, you're like, you, guys, you guys are like the operating system now. We yeah, I mean to or, an extent, or, or a platform maybe yeah to an extent. I mean, I wish I could almost feel what you said in its full meaning because I think that would be great if we get there. But we are the underlying curriculum and content and bridge to Silicon Valley because all of your coaching and mentorship content. Uh, It's all developed here by Silicon Valley, serial entrepreneurs who are either still involved in entrepreneurship. Some are are involved in large corporates, you know, tech or other, you know, the financial world. We have mentors, you know, we have a couple of hundred mentors that work with us as needed. And so we can really support uh, a subject matter for for some of those groups or, you know, you name it. We kind of have somebody who can come and step step up to the table and help a founder. But working with those either other accelerators or, or even early stage venture firms around the globe who are trying to support and grow um, their startup ecosystems and individual founders and their teams and companies. Um, working with those groups has been a little bit more of a pivot for us. We've got a group right now we're working with in Korea, in the Middle East, in South, uh, South America, across Africa. Um, Eastern Europe is actually a big area for us. We do a lot of work in Eastern Europe. Um, with universities as well. We've started to bring the program down to a graduate university level um, where we can help foster. You know, when I came through grad school, there wasn't an entrepreneurship focus. You couldn't select it. You kind of had a manufacturer. Right. Now mm-hmm. it's, in, you know, a much more common common thing, but we're trying to offer what we call practical and tactical entrepreneurship to, to would-be founders and even at that level now. And when you think about LATAM, I mean, what's your perspective of we have advanced in terms of entrepreneurship? And also, what do you think about the cities in Latin America that call themselves like the Silicon Valley of Mexico or the Silicon Valley of Colombia? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that's a worldwide phenomena. I've been to the Silicon Valley of fill in the blank um, everywhere. And I don't, you know, I get it. I get asked very frequently and I'm by no means the only one. How do we create, you know, here, wherever here is like you guys have in Silicon Valley. And one of our early, um, it's kind of a combination of a keynote presentation and it's even in the first module of the Silicon Valley in your pocket curriculum is an understanding of Silicon Valley and what makes it Silicon Valley. I mean, so I think it's very difficult for places to kind of be the Silicon Valley of wherever of, you know, here would be. But I think tapping into the techniques we use is definitely something. Like I said, I think of Silicon Valley as a mindset, not exclusively a geography. So, you know, looking at regions around the world or specifically LATAM, I think LATAM has lots of great you know, places that are very innovative. Um, we work a lot in South America. Some you of them tra- work- you, You've traveled to some? I, oh, I definitely have traveled. Like, uh, you know, we've spoken yeah. a bit about Santiago, Chile. I, you know, we, uh, we were working with the uh, Startup Chile organization there. Um, we've worked in Uruguay. We've worked in Argentina. We've worked in Brazil, uh, Ecuador, Colombia. So, yeah, we've kind of made our rounds even in Central America a little bit. We've been down to uh, Mexico numerous times and done a number of programs even in Guadalajara. I think that's where you're from. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so yeah. we've worked with some of the groups there. 
the Talent Land Conference. Uh, we were participants. In fact, that got shut down in April 2020. We were on our way back down for another uh, um, a return visit to Talent Land, and that got shut down when the uh, when COVID came about. So yeah, we travel about um, and work in all these different places. So yeah. my belief my belief is that even Silicon Valley, you know. People kind of think of this as an interesting thing. Silicon Valley itself benefits massively from non-U.S. citizens who come to Silicon Valley and help Silicon Valley be what it is. Um, the statistics I've seen are 52% of tech companies are founded by non-nationals here in, in Silicon Valley, and 55% of the unicorns are founded by non-nationals in America. So you know, we, so the, I, world, the world is creating lots of entrepreneurial companies. It's not, it's not only us. Fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone gives Silicon Valley all that credit. And, and listen, it's a play, it's a bit of a magnet for global talent. And I think that that in and of itself is very, you know, uh, powerful, but the point being the, the intelligence, the ideas, the creativity, et cetera, is all over the world. And so we try to bring the other aspects of Silicon Valley to those regions to try to help them grow and foster their own yeah. ecosystems, their startup ecosystems. That's awesome. And all right, so segue, because one of the ways that you try and bring beyond Silicon Valley in your pocket to you try and bring resources and power to entrepreneurs all over the place is, is as an active angel investor, right? And, and as an investor in not only entrepreneurs, but also in funds, in venture capital funds. So Talk to me, two, two things. Talk to me about your belief, your feeling of the importance of investing broadly outside the U.S. or, or around different markets in the U.S. And then secondarily, talk to me about um, kind of what your belief is around investing in what, what we'll call underrepresented founders, right? Or, or categories outside of guys that look like you and I, who are middle-aged white guys, right? <laughs> like, so what, what, about, what about those two things? Investing outside of Silicon Valley, and then yeah. investing in founders that don't look like what Silicon Valley has looked like for the past 60 years. Yeah, which uh, I'll start a little bit on the second piece. I think it's absolutely critical that people invest in founders of all stripes, if you will. I think, in, you know, they do say that, you know, the way you, if you want to know how people invest, have them look in the mirror, right? That's a common kind of way of characterizing that kind of people like you and I, Rob, older, middle-aged, whatever white dudes invest in older, middle-aged, or just white dudes. I don't do that. I, I look at the idea of the, the merit of the opportunity. I don't really care who, where it's from or who founded it. Now, I will clarify the where it's from piece to get to the first part of your question. Um, it is hard for most angel investors and, and investors in general to invest in non-U.S. based uh, companies. Now, what I mean by that, I don't care if you're based anywhere else in the world. If you want to get a U.S. investor interested, the vast majority of friction is going to come from being a non-U.S. company. The structure, the corporate structure, the legal entity, the legal structure, the corporate structure. And the reason I say that is, and I'm asked this question all the time, wherever I might be in the world, they'll say, well, would you be able to help us find investors here? And I usually respond with the same question in all those scenarios, which is I ask these non-US people, how familiar are you with US investment law? And they say, not very. And I say, that's how an that's how informed people in the U.S. are about your investment law. So if you want U.S. investors to invest in your company, you probably want to remove the friction of being a non-U.S. company. And the way you can do that is you can establish a U.S. In general, people will hear, you'll hear the Delaware C-Corp. 
you know, form a U.S. entity and form a U.S. banking relationship. And now a U.S. investor doesn't have to think about those two things. Am I investing in a U.S. entity and is my money staying within the boundaries of the United States? That doesn't mean the money, once it goes into the bank account of the company, has to stay in the United States. It can fund a team in Colombia, in uh, Armenia, in South Africa, you know, anywhere in the world. I recommend leaving your teams where they are, wherever they are, you know, wherever they are is. I recommend leaving your teams there if you're satisfied with your teams. But if the goal is to attract U.S. investment, I think setting up a Delaware C in a U.S. banking account is critical. And then there's something you'd have to do called an inversion, make your foreign company a subsidiary of so that when I, as an investor, when any investor invests in the U.S. company, they're investing in the company that owns the intellectual property, because that's ultimately what people want to invest in. So it's a long way of saying, if you want to get U.S. investment, set up a U.S. entity and a U.S. banking relationship, because yeah. those checkboxes are kind of must-haves for the majority of investors. They're nice-to-haves for a very select and small group of investors. So I think to remove that friction, it's just easier to go that route. Yeah, I love it. And not a long way at all because it was it's detail rich, right? You just gave a roadmap on how to and you also validated why you in your individual case focus on what you focus on. So I want to go a little bit deeper on that for a second because inevitably people will listen and they'll be like, wow, I really love that Jeff guy. He's got great energy. He seems super smart. I wonder if he would invest in us or I wonder if he would invest in our new fund that we're raising in Mexico City or in some other market, right? So You've got the experiences and the expertise that you developed over the length of your career, right? But now you're exposed to so much technology-wise and so many different industries and so many different problems to be solved. What's your particular focus, say, now, you know, next five, 10 years? Like, what types of industries do you see as being big? I don't want just the hot stuff. Like, you don't have to tell us fintech because we already know that, sure. right? Like, like, what do you really see as, like, the industries that are important to invest in or that you see are really opportunities now going forward? And then also, like, what types of distribution of your funds is is kind of in your plan, right? Like, are you going to invest in lots more emerging managers? Are you going to invest mostly in entrepreneurs? Like, what is what do those two paths look like over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, no, great question. And, and in terms of industries where I myself have been uh, spending a lot of time and resource and investment as well, um, I look for a few things. First and foremost, and this may sound a little corny, but I'm at the stage of my career in my life where I get to pick and choose who I'm going to spend that time and my resources with. My so, favorite phrase. Right. Old, old guys, we get to pick and choose who we do business with and hang out with, right? Listen, there's a truth to how blessed being in that position is. And I look at it and I think two things. Am I going to have fun working with these founders? And I really mean that. Like, is it going to be enjoyable? Are we going to have fun? Um, and then secondarily, can I really add value to their journey? And there are times I will actually honestly say, no, I don't think I'm the best person who could add the most value. I always think I can add value somewhere for my experience and my network. But there are times I will decline um, working with someone or investing in someone because I feel like it's not going to be either the most enjoyable use of my time or I'm not the right person, but I will try to connect them to the right people so that they can get the best bang for their, their buck, so to say, in terms of investors and uh, getting the right resources to support them. But if I can fill in those two blanks, then the answer is yes, I'm all in. I'm all, and, and I'm a terrible, terrible passive investor. 
I suck at being a passive investor. <laughs> so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you guys on camera. I roll my sleeves up. My sleeves are rolled up. I'm jumping into the deep end of the pool to help the founders. <laughs> like I'm not here to just give you money and then hope it, you know, somehow uh, several years later you tell me how well we did. Like I'm gonna be involved. So that's the criteria I look for: is can I bring value um, beyond my capital? And then the industries that I've, I've been leaning in on, there's a few insure techs that I think have been very Ooh. interesting in my world. In, that in, have, insurance. Insurance? In, insurance, but these are kind of tech slash science enabled insurance companies. I've got a few in that world um, re- currently and as of recent. And then the pet industry. Interestingly, the pet space has become wow. a very favored industry for me over the last few years. I've had a couple of investments, a, a couple of portfolio companies. Pets. Pet. How do we yeah. say that? In, uh, what is, how do we say pets in Espanol? Mascotas. Mascotas. Okay. Mascotas. 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 Okay. There we go. Well, yeah. Those are, those are two industries I've been spending a lot of time in, but you know, in terms of others that are of interest to me, I, I haven't made any direct investment in this particular one that I'm thinking of, but they're in the uh, space industry. There's a, a young <laughs> group of founders. Well, relative to me, they're young. They're everywhere. Um, <laughs> but they are—they have created a technology to go up into outer space, and this may sound a little interesting. But one of the challenges in space these days is there's a lot of space junk floating around in orbit, and it's whipping yeah. around, and it's interfering with the orbit of satellites that are of critical. You know, we're doing our, this call because satellites enable us to have this kind of communication. Sure. If those satellites get disrupted by junk flying around that could harm the satellites or damage the satellites, um, that's a bad thing. So they've created a product oh. or a solution that goes up and actually takes junk out of orbit, trying to clean up space. I think of them as the RoboVac for, for space. They're going around <laughs> taking out all the junk that nobody the, wants. The, the, the Roomba, the little the Roomba, one that goes the Roomba, around. Yeah, the Roomba for space. Um, but that's a really, really interesting company that I've been working with and um, – I think they're really onto something, wow. to be honest. That's By the way, this is why you asked the question, right? Because, Ile, there's no way you and I would have <laughs> bet he was going to say insurance, mascotas, and space. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right? like no way that was the three industries I, was, I thought I you was going to You would have hit the jackpot if you uh, had picked those three, so <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, that is incredible. And by the way, just so I can put this on the record, and I don't forget, I have a shameless plug that I'll have to tell you about afterwards for a mascotas company for a pet company that that is here in California that you should know. So yes, beautiful, I love yeah, it. I, I I find that industry over the last couple of years it's been very interesting because COVID actually um, allowed a lot more people. The uh, percentage of homes in the United States, in particular, that rose during COVID as pet owners. Yeah. It went from the uh, mid to high 60s to over 70% of households now own a pet, at least one. And, and so it's you, a growing industry. It's a massive industry. And, you know, there's a lot of people There's a lot of people in the world that like their pets better than they like other people. So they really, really uh, are not uncomfortable spending money on their pets. And it's a nope. huge, huge industry. Ile will be very excited to, to know that the way I'm going to introduce you to this company and founder is by sending you the link to her interview on our podcast. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's awesome. That is terrific. Wow. What an answer. That's fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. Jeff, we are hitting the last part of the show, and this is where you become the mentor of the day. Okay. You already have been very insightful, but now we want you to tell us three pieces of advice for our audience, uh, remembering that 
our audience is uh, mainly from Latin America or cross-border in the U.S. So can you please give us three pieces of advice? You know, um, a absolutely, I'm happy to. And you re remind me when I was actually speaking, I, it was in either Guatemala or, or Bogota. Um, there was a break in the event and, and a gentleman um, from the government in South America came over to me and said, what would be two pieces? He asked, I'll add a third for our discussion, but he asked me for two particular pieces of advice for founders. And it was really out of left field. Like I was literally coming down from the steps of the stage and he walked over and he said, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And he said, what are two things you would tell entrepreneurs? And I was like, huh. Okay. Um, and the two things that came to my mind then, they've stuck. They've stuck with me. They're still things I tell entrepreneurs all the time. One is ignore the no's. There's going to be a ton of people that are going to tell you no. It's a bad idea. Um, it's never going to work. Um, they're just going to be negative about your idea. And here's what I would re recommend every entrepreneur do. Smile and go prove for yourself if they're right or if you're right. Because I don't, so don't, I don't care who they are. I don't care how experienced they are. I don't care how rich or wealthy they are. I don't care how smart you think they are. If your instinct tells you your idea is a good idea, go prove it truthful or not truthful for yourself. So ignore the no's. Don't let someone else's negativity. I often find that that negativity stems from jealousy. Even though it's subconscious, nobody's consciously jealous, but they're thinking, yeah. well, I didn't think of it, so it's probably not great because if it was great, I would have thought of that. And so ignore the no's. That's the first one. The second one is get really comfortable. And this is not easy. Public speaking. Because you can yeah. have the best idea in the world, but if you can't communicate it well, it is highly unlikely it's going to go very far. So despite the survey showing people fear public speaking more than they fear death, Get good at public speaking. Speak with passion. Speak with enthusiasm. Speak with confidence. I always tell people I'm 110% confident and about 10% of the time I'm right. So <laughs> get good at speaking about your business. It's your baby. Describe your baby with the passion that it deserves. Now, you did ask for three, so I will add a third one, which is um, I would even add a fourth if you wanted me to. But the third one is really about what I have found most founders do is they lead with investment. They all put together the pitch deck. And if you get to that last slide of the pitch deck, it's got a dollar sign that they need. I need this much money. The reality is the most frequent response founders are going to hear from investors is, that's kind of interesting. Come back when you have some traction. So my attitude to founders is stop asking for investment and start asking for traction. Get a pilot. Don't ask someone for money because they're going to say, come back when you have more traction or um, some other way of deflecting the money question. And so my attitude is go ask for traction. Ask them, can I pilot this? Can I just get you to use this, test it, kick the tires, tell me what you love about it. And even more importantly, tell me what you don't love about it. And I'm going to improve it. And when I do, I want you to see the value and the benefit that I believe it can deliver for you. So asking for traction more so than investment, I think is critical. And I wish more founders were guided that way because they are all guided to put a pitch deck together and go ask for money. And that, that is a question that runs into a brick wall pretty quickly with many, many founders. Not all, but most. Yeah, that's awesome. How do you flip it? Like Wow. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> you mind is blown here. 
Yeah, we tell founders that all the time. Stop asking for investment. Start asking for traction. The the last one I did tease a fourth one. The fourth one, if I were to throw bonus, 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 extra credit one is, um, and this happened with an entrepreneur from Panama. He um, had a really interesting idea. He came to me. I really liked the founder. He had a good energy about him. I liked what he was trying to do, but he was a solo founder or what I would call a solopreneur. And being a solopreneur. it's too difficult. I think the first thing you should do is if you are a solopreneur is go find a co-founder. And I encourage this founder to go find a co-founder. I said, I can't invest in you. And he said, why? I said, well, it's the Greyhound bus syndrome. And he looked at me like, what? What do you mean? What's the Greyhound bus syndrome? I said, if you and I have a conversation in a coffee shop and you ask me to invest in your business and I agree, and then we leave and we wave goodbye and you step off the curb across the street and the Greyhound bus runs you over, my investment's gone. Because I didn't really invest in a business. I invested in an individual that the business was hinged on. So it's too um, risky for an investor to invest in an individual. And so the first thing I say is go find a co-founder or what I would say is someone who can carry the torch forward in your absence. And a co-founder, to be very clear, they don't have to have started the business at the same time as you. They don't have to have an equal share as you. Um, It just means someone who can carry the torch if for any reason you are unable to. That is something that has a sustainability um, and a longevity or sustenance to it that an investor will find attractive as opposed to, no, it's just me. Just me can get a cold. That's, yeah. that's, a, yeah. that's a tough place for an investor to be. And most investors won't tell you this, which is frustrating. I was just going to say, that's the clearest example, like description of that truism which is always put out there that's the clearest justification for it i've literally ever heard i wish more investors would be i'll just call it blunt with entrepreneurs they're cordial they're nice in most cases hopefully all cases but i'll just say most um but i really wish they would be blunt and and um you know a hard truth is a lot easier to swallow than a pleasant lie like don't misguide me just tell me why won't you invest i told that panamanian founder go find a co-founder he was a bit more of a, a technical guy and i said go find a business co-founder go find somebody who could carry the torch in your absence he came back a couple months later to the bay area and he had a co-founder and i invested in the business now long well, story short the business didn't survive and that wasn't the, that wasn't the outcome that, i was hoping that's not, yeah of course and that's not but that's not the point of any not of these the stories point of right, it, right? and i'm not exactly. sharing that other than for transparency yeah but he came back he found a co-founder i respected the co-founder we had a couple of meetings during their visit here in the in the silicon valley and i said you know what i asked you to go find a co-founder that i thought you know and you thought more importantly and i agreed could carry the torch of the business forward you've done that Here's a check because that's what I think you need to do. If you're going to ask someone to do something in order to clear a check or to clear an investment hurdle, honor it. And I did. I felt, and I don't bemoan the fact that that lost. In fact, when the business faltered, that founder called me up and was very apologetic. And I said, why are you apologizing? He said, well, the business failed. I said, I didn't invest with 100% expectation you were going to succeed. Just I learned a lot about you. And I said, here's what I would ask of you. Carry the lessons forward. And I'll invest in another business of yours if you do it. So that's the way I, uh, that would be my fourth advice is don't be a solopreneur. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, well, it was a blast have you in the show. 
And now, can you please tell us where we can find you on social media and where we can find uh, Silicon Valley in your pocket? Absolutely. So um, of all the media or social platforms, I live on LinkedIn. So if you need me, find Jeff Wallace on LinkedIn, okay. Silicon Valley in your pocket. Um, you can go to Silicon Valley in your pocket, or if you want to make that easier for yourself, just use the initials svyp.com or globalkinetics.com. That's our kind of parent company that offers even corporate innovation work and bringing corporates and startup ecosystems together. So I welcome anybody who's interested to reach out. I am. I try my best to respond to everything as quickly as possible. So if I don't hit you up, you're welcome to hit me back and say, hey, I haven't heard from you. Here's my second message. I promise I'll do my best to respond. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Dude, that was awesome. W wonderful. So great to have you. Um, I mean, we, we just packed a lot in there in like 44, 45 minutes. There's so much wisdom. I know, I know founders are going to enjoy listening to it. I know other investors will enjoy listening to it. Um, just grateful for your positive energy and your knowledge and the willingness to come on here and kind of share some more of that knowledge at scale. So thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us for a little bit. Oh, I loved it guys. I appreciate you, uh, you know, giving me the opportunity to join you guys and to talk about this stuff. I love being able to say anything that might be helpful to a founder. So if any of this helps somebody, I couldn't be more happy. And thank you. Wonderful. Thanks buddy. Thanks. Have a great day guys. Thanks again. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and Guadalajara, produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City, and promoted by the content team at Growth Hacks in Tijuana, Mexico. You can always find and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today on Instagram. If you'd like to connect with our hosts, you can find them on Twitter or Instagram at I am Rob Ryan or at Ileana J-A-F. Gracias, thank you, and we'll see you next time.